This was originally uh, designed to be a seven-week teaching series on the seven churches of Revelation, but then I decided to make it eight instead. And uh, one of the reasons was, um, as I began to do the research on the seven churches, I realized that it doesn't give you a lot of background on what leads up to the seven churches being addressed um, and the letters that are written to them. So today is really just um, a bit of a, some background and context so that you can more fully um, maybe connect and understand and appreciate the, the next uh, seven weeks as we address one specific church a week in this series. Many of us have some familiarity with the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, maybe we know at least that it's the last book in the Bible, or maybe we breezed through it at one time or another and stopped at some of the sensational parts, you know, the dragons, the beasts with seven heads and ten horns, and thunder and lightning and earthquakes and all of that. And for others, um, maybe you don't, maybe you've never read this book, maybe you've never even uh, attempted to try to understand this, this book that is very difficult for us to understand. However, the message of Revelation was originally uh, addressed to a group of Christ followers, just like us, who didn't have modern day books and movies and other things to guide them or maybe to confuse them as to the meaning of what was being written. I ran across two comments about this book that I found kind of interesting. One person said about the book of Revelation, there are as many riddles in the Revelation as there are words. And if you've tried reading through that, maybe you'll say, yes, that's been my understanding as well. Another person wrote, the study of the Revelation either finds or leaves a person mad. Well, the style of writing of this book is different than the rest of scripture. It's not always easy to understand or interpret. However, the theological emphasis uh, in this book is on the origins of what is said. The prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord God. And what is said is a radical uncovering of things previously hidden. As such, there are images, there are hidden meanings, unlike any other place in the Bible text. But before we get lost in this unusual book, let me start with a little bit of background. The book itself tells us that the author was someone by the name of John. Now, tradition tells us that it was the Apostle John, but there's no definitive biblical evidence of that. All we know is the author's name. And those who are in the know tell us that there's a good chance that the book was written by someone else whose first language was not Greek, the original uh, language of the New Testament. William Barclay, the writer of the Daily Bible Study Commentary, wrote this about the Greek that was used in this book. He said, it is vivid, it's powerful, and it's pictorial, but from the point of view of grammar, it is easily the worst Greek in the New Testament. He makes the author makes mistakes which no schoolboy who knew Greek could possibly make. So whoever John was, he wrote in a style that's often called apocalyptic, which means the unveiling. Um, the apocalyptic is a Greek, comes from a Greek word, means hidden, unveiling, things that are exposed. The apocalyptical writing was very popular, especially during the period of time between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The Jewish people had been living under the reign of occupying armies for about 500 years. And they looked ahead to that day when the Messiah would come to deliver his people. And the revelation borrows from much of that literature and style, but its message is very Christ-centered. So scholars place the writing of this book uh, somewhere around 90 to 95 AD, uh, about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The letter was written from a small island in the Mediterranean Sea called Patmos. And we are told by John that he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Tradition has it that he had been exiled to this island because of his faith. It was a penal colony situated in the Aegean Sea between Turkey and the Isle of Crete. And if we look at a map, we can see where the Isle of Patmos is actually located. And here is a picture of Patmos today. It looks fairly pleasant. It's a small island, about 10 miles long, about five miles wide. But listen to the words of Sir William Ramsey. He said, John's banishment would have been preceded by scourging, uh, whipping, uh, marked by perpetual shackles, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleeping on the bare ground, a dark prison, and work under the lash of a military overseer. Pretty rugged conditions for a man who maybe was even in his 90s. No matter how uh, pretty the view of the island. Even if he wasn't forced into hard labor, he was still in exile. He was away from his home, away from his family and friends. And all of this took place during the time of the emperor Domitian, who was the first emperor to, to uh, insist on emperor worship. That is, he actually believed that he was a god and instead uh, insisted that uh, he be worshiped by, as a god by all of his subjects and every year, uh, everyone in the kingdom was required to appear at the temple, offer some incense, and utter the words, Caesar is Lord. Well, as you can imagine, for Christians, that posed a bit of a problem because they believed that only Jesus was Lord. And so they refused to obey the edict, and Domitian uh, responded by having those who refused to call him God either executed or imprisoned or exiled, and it would appear that John had been exiled probably from about 90 to 96 AD, the year that Domitian died. And so this rocky, barren island becomes the backdrop for this vision that John has and records for us. The influence of the sea can be seen throughout the book, and the word ocean or sea is used about 25 times in different analogies. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, a couple of points here. We're not really sure what was meant by worshiping in the Spirit. Some would contend that John was in some kind of mystical trance. 
But others would say that he was simply enjoying a private worship time. The term the Lord's Day would imply that it was the first day of the week and John was worshiping, maybe even singing, maybe he'd been reading scripture, maybe meditating on the goodness of God, but we don't know what, was what it was specifically that for John entailed worshiping in the spirit. But we do know that he was in a position spiritually to be open and to be receptive to what Jesus would have him hear. And part of what he learned from the Lord was that this vision was to be addressed to seven specific churches. The churches are said to be in Asia, and when the letter was written, that did not mean the continent of Asia in the Far East. It meant um, a Roman province of Asia, which is now what we would know today as the nation of Turkey. So why seven? Why not three? Why not 10? Why not four? We don't know why these churches were picked. They were, there were certainly more churches in the area than these specific ones. There have been several theories about why the letter was addressed to these individual churches. It has been suggested that John may have had a special relationship to these churches. Maybe he preached there, maybe he knew the pastor there, some members of the church, and so they would be more receptive to the letters that he was sending. Others have suggested that seven is the number of completeness. Therefore, the seven churches represent all churches. And certainly the number seven figures heavily into the book of Revelation. It's mentioned over 30 times. There are seven years, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven bowls, seven plagues. So maybe he just thought that seven was a good number to fit the pattern. These may have also been the largest churches in the area. So perhaps the letters were sent there and distributed then to smaller churches around them. If we pull up a map of the area where these churches were located, we discover that they were located in kind of a circular route. And in a day and age when there was no email, no fax machines, no postal service, it would have been unrealistic to think that the letter would be sent to every church so maybe just seven were chosen. It has been suggested that not only do the letters apply to the seven specific individual historical churches, but also there might be a wider meaning. There are some who would suggest that each of the churches represents a period in church history. Emphasis, uh, or Ephesus, the, the first church that we'll talk about, describes maybe the early church period. Smyrna, the church that was being persecuted. Pergamum, the popularized church. Thyatira, the Dark Ages. Sardis, the Reformation period. Philadelphia, the revived church. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church, much like the church of today. Now, if, it's, if all that's not confusing enough with this historical meaning and the church age meaning, there's another way that we can perhaps view these churches that is indicative of various churches today. We can find churches in our time that mirror each of these seven churches. We have churches today in our nation that are just like Ephesus, churches that are just like Sardis, churches that are just like Laodicea. So John's message is relevant. It's applicable to today. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at each of the seven churches, one at a time, where they are historically, how the letter applied to that particular situation, 
and how it might be an analogy of a particular period of church history, and then some warnings and some advice uh, for the church today. In chapter one, beginning with verse 19, we read, write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, that's clear as mud, isn't it? But I'm glad Jesus helped to clear that up for us. But we need to understand two things before we can move on to the individual churches. The clarification that Jesus gives goes back to chapter one, beginning with verse 12, when it says, when I, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of God. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. And then verse 16 says, he held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. I want you to notice four things about these particular verses. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. John saw Jesus holding seven stars in his hand and Jesus tells him that these seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. And there are at least four possibilities of what that could mean. In its simplest simplest sense, the word angel in the Greek means messenger. But in most cases, when that word is used, it means heavenly messenger. What we would normally think of as an angel, you know, white robe, big wings, the whole shooting match. But other times it meant messenger, And there are some who would suggest that these seven angels were human messengers who had gathered to take John's message to these respective churches. They were perhaps the early FedEx guys. You know, come pick up the letter and off they went to deliver the letter. Now linguistically that makes some sense to the seven messengers of the seven churches, but when we get into the letters themselves, it would appear that whoever the angels were, they were more than simply messengers. Another possibility in all other instances in Revelation, the word angel means angel, a heavenly being. And with that in mind, there have been some who suggest that perhaps they were guardian angels who protected the individual churches. And some early scholars actually believed that these angels were held accountable if a church went wrong. The problem is that even though it is the angel who is mentioned in the opening of each letter, it is obviously the members of each of these churches who are being addressed. Both Greeks and Jews believe that every earthly thing had a heavenly counterpart. And so it has been suggested too that the angel being addressed is the ideal of each church, the way it was supposed to be. And then it's also been suggested that the angel of the church was actually the human overseer, the pastor. And the letters were being addressed to these spiritual shepherds. This particular view is backed up by Malachi chapter two, verse seven in the Old Testament where we read the words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God and people should go to him for instruction for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. Now in the Greek Old Testament, the word for messenger is the same word used for angel. 
Traditionally, it has been um, this last view that some scholars have accepted, that the seven angels were the seven bishops or pastors of these churches, and which of course has some serious implications for those of us who are pastors. It may indicate that we are responsible for your individual behavior and obedience as a Christ follower, as the overseer of Redeemer Church. This view would indicate that I'm not only responsible to God for my obedience and behavior, but I'm also responsible for your collective obedience and behavior. And you wonder why I'm stressed out some days. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's go back uh, for a moment to Revelation chapter one, verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Three things I want you to notice here. First of all, the lampstands were gold. Not iron, not brass, not silver, but gold. And while that may not mean much to us outside of some economic statement today, it had very, a different connotation 2,000 years ago. The context of gold when this letter was written was not only about its worth, but also about purity. Society today has, seems to be declaring that the church is irrelevant. And there are lots of believers that feel that, you know, we don't need to go to church. We can worship just fine all on our own. But God in his infinite wisdom chose to use this vessel called the church that we sometimes see truthfully as an imperfect vessel. But God sees it as his instrument to change the world. Don't write off the church. In John's vision, he did not see Jesus surrounded by individual believers all doing their own thing and all worshiping God in their own way. He saw Jesus in the center of these churches. Remember the Bible calls the, the church the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5:27, Paul says, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And not that this is a description of the church today, it's not. We know that as long as the church is made up of people, it will have spots and it will have blemishes. But the ultimate plan is for us to be perfect. And every once in a while, I run into believers who don't go to church and just do the home thing. You know, when I ask them, I haven't been able to find the right church yet. The church is called to be together. Second thing we need to see here, though, is it's not just what the lampstand was made of, but that it is a lampstand. It's simply a stand for a lamp. The church is not the lamp. It is the lampstand. And the light does not come from the stand. It comes from a lamp. Now, there are two ways that we can view this, and they are both valid. Jesus said in eight, uh, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And there are those who say correctly that the light that shines from the church must be Jesus. And when a church no longer preaches Jesus as the Son of God, born of a virgin, died on a cross, resurrected on the third day, offering forgiveness to those who seek it, we're no longer the church. And I would agree with that. We have no light in ourselves. 
And there are those who would, who would uh, say, look at John 9, 5, where Jesus said, but while I'm here uh, in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus again says, you, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And so there are those who say correctly that Jesus left believers, you and I, to be the light of the world. And that light shines from the church to, uh, and it comes from each of us, and that is our responsibility to shine the light of God's goodness and love. But either way, when, when the light, whether it comes from Christ or comes from each of us, is removed, then the lampstand is no longer needed. But the third thing I want you to hear about lampstands is this. Within the framework of the Bible, when the word lampstand is used, Jews thought immediately of the menorah. It's described in Exodus chapter 25. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. The revelation is not talking about the seven lamps that make up the lampstand. Instead, it is talking about seven individual lampstands. Each lampstand has a unity. They are connected. And within the church, there needs to be unity. We as a body need to be united. Even though there is no physical connection between the seven lampstands, the unity for all of them combined comes from Christ because he is the center. The one who John describes as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come. So I hope... Today I've given you just a little taste of this series and um, you'll find a way to be here or listen to the podcast and follow along uh, the dynamics of these seven churches. But more than that, we discover, I hope that we discover what the church is saying uh, or what God is saying to the church today. Our church, all churches. So be reading ahead. Read the first part of chapter two for next week. And we're going to start with the church at Ephesus. Let me close today with John's words from chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what John says. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says. For the time is near. Pray with me. God, you stirred your servant John to see the needs of these seven churches and you moved him to comfort them and to reveal your mind and your heart to these congregations who were suffering. So grant that your spirit may touch our hearts as we study together over these next several weeks so that we may truly hear and learn and understand what you may be saying to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.